This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Michael Miller and David Blas, how you guys doing tonight? Doing great, Matt. Same. Doing well. Good. So you guys uh, don't know each other, and uh, we've I've interacted with both of you just a bit. Uh, you guys have both graciously agreed to come on together because there's something that about your both your stories that I that's similar that I think is really interesting, and we'll get into that momentarily. But before we start uh, into the reason why I why I coalesced you into one episode uh i was just talk i was just talking with with uh with michael before we hit record and he was saying yesterday was the last day of muzzleloader season in kentucky where he's from so that 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 we do very little in the way of 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 how-to content on the podcast but i just have got to ask this when i was a kid i had a muzzle loader and i shot a deer with it one time which was like about as mountain manny an experience as i'll ever have it was it was like nigh on last shooting light maybe the last minute and when i shot it was just it was a doe and there was flame coming out the barrel that I could see and smoke. And it just felt so <laughs> old timey, but, but leading up to that, I had had in, in the week prior two misfires. I've recently learned that they're called hang fires. Did you know that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I had one today. <clears throat> okay. That's, and then, so now we have a muzzleloader season in Montana and last year was the first year. This is the second year. So myself, two friends of mine and, and myself, we hunted a fair bit this last, it was, it's like a 10 day season and we hunted a fair bit, but boy, were we struggling with that because we were firing the muzzleloaders at the end of each day, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. And I was exactly. doing a, it turns out I was doing a lot of hunting where I had zero chance of killing something. <laughs> like last night, I, it was the fifth cap before it went off. Holy smokes. So can you tell me what? And then I looked online, I looked around to try to figure out, you know, some hot tips. Maybe we got old powder. I got my neighbor gave me a bunch of powder. I don't know. Is that a thing? Or old I caps. I don't. Everything's- yeah, I don't. I don't know. I know I have a uh, fairly modern. It's more of like a modern inline muzzleloader, and it uses the pellets. And I had a hang fire today, and uh, I think it's just the moisture in the air. With mine, I think there was a little bit of uh, just a little bit of fouling in that in that uh, nipple the, or whatever. Right yeah. In, yeah, right in, right inside the nipple. When I took it apart, because I actually had to take the breech plug. I didn't want to keep trying to fire it. So I took the breech plug out and uh, 
just pushed it out, pushed the uh, slug out with the ramrod and the pellets fell out and the pellets were kind of crumbly. So I don't know if mine was just the moisture in the air and this freezing and thawing weather that we've had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, uh, I think Thank God is- nothing came by this oh. week, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I would have needed, I would have needed <laughs> counseling, you know, that's right. <clears throat> How about you, David? Have you done any muzzle stuffing? No, never. Uh, you know, growing up, I hunted up in Wisconsin where there's a muzzleloader season there. But as far as I know, in Texas, I I don't know of any specific muzzleloader season or even, um, you know, drawn hunts or anything like that that call for muzzleloader. So just not, no, nothing I ever got into. Yeah. Um. Okay. W- would you guys mind just giving us, giving the listener a sense of, of your backgrounds and, sure. your, uh, your, and yeah. your journeys as hunters. Yeah. Yep. Sure. I, I mean, I can start. Um, I was born up in New York state, up in the central part of the state where it's like cow country and, uh, just short, just South of the Adirondacks. And, um, I grew up and lived there pretty much until I turned 18. As far as hunting goes, uh, I didn't even, I don't really remember when I first like learned to hunt. I, I pretty much hunted from the time I was really, really young. My grandfather uh, would have us out there with a BB gun chasing the squirrels away from the bird feeder. And uh, he just had a really strict set of rules about like, we couldn't shoot the squirrels that were at the bird feeder because he thought that was just <laughs> not fair to the squirrels, which is which is kind of weird. I never understood it at the time. I was like, but that's the easiest place. They're sitting still completely. I could just basically walk right up to him <laughs> and uh and i think if we'd ever shot a songbird we probably would have been strung up i think that would have been the end of it we would have we would have not touched that bb gun ever again so we had like these really strict rules and we just knew better than to shoot the songbirds or to shoot the squirrels at the feeder and so i mean from the time i was probably old enough to cock that thing it was a really old uh daisy uh single pump uh bb gun uh, we had to like figure out, you know, using our wits, kind of where to ambush these squirrels on their way to the feeder because we kind of knew where they came from and we kind of knew where they were going to end up if we left them alone. <laughs> was there a was there a safety zone in place? Like they had to be so many feet from the feeder. Or? Yeah, we we couldn't hunt them right in his backyard, and he had a big. I mean, he's got a big farm. Probably it's a little over ninety acres. <clears throat> And, uh, but we had to just not be in his lawn. So there was like a, there was a, probably that was about 30 feet from the feeder, 40 feet from the feeder, maybe. But we had to kind of figure out where along this little ravine, they, they'd kind of run up this little ravine and there was like a hedgerow of trees and they would just go from treetop to treetop. And so here we are, like me and my brother, probably five, six, seven years old. I don't even remember learning how to do it, but we just just figured out like, Oh, that's where they're going to always go. Cause they're going to get food. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was kind of funny like that. And then like my dad, he didn't really hunt. Um, he had a few guns. He, he, uh, he had a shotgun and I think he had a 22 and he had a, he had a little, um, black powder pistol, which is really an interesting thing. And I remember shooting that when I was really young and we'd, you know, sit in our backyard and shoot it at like, he had a big table set up with like, pumpkins on it and old soda cans and stuff like that but i never really um i don't really remember anyone teaching me to hunt until i was like older and even then it wasn't uh it wasn't like formal instruction from my dad my uncle used to take us hunting and he'd 
hunt rabbits and we'd go with him rabbit hunting. This is your dad's brother? Uh, it's actually my uh, mom's sister's husband. I see. Okay. So it's like my uh, on my mother's side. <clears throat> so if you had a if you if you had a mentor, it was him. Oh, exactly. Yeah. As far as uh, the as far as the hunting, learning like learning to hunt, because my dad just he didn't ever really hunt um, that much. We shot a lot, like just targets and stuff. But like my uncle, he would take us. Um, he would take us more like rabbit hunting, and I know he deer hunted, but we never went with him. We were we were really young at the time. Probably, I think he moved away when I was like maybe ten, to where we weren't really around him as much. But we'd go up to their camp and we'd fish with him all the time. And my dad fished quite a bit, and they'd take us on picnics and we'd fish. And uh, so, like being in the outdoors, we were always in the outdoors. Like we'd berry pick, and um, we'd like hike to fire towers way up in the Adirondack Mountains and in what they call the North Woods, <clears throat> and uh, so that was that was. Like my introduction to the outdoors was just like, it was part of our, like my grandfather would cut trees every fall and we'd just be outdoors all the time. And that was like on his farm there, he'd do it for firewood. So like, we were just always out. So your dad was a farmer? Uh, no, my dad, uh, actually worked in a factory. He built, um, uh, hand tools like, uh, pitchforks and shovels and all that. It was one of the, probably the last ones that was still made in America. But, the he, had, time. but he owned a small farm. Uh, that was, it was actually my grandfather that owned the farm, but we all lived on it. So it was I like see. my, my okay. grandfather, my parents and, uh, my uncle and my other uncle all lived there on that. That was, I think right around 90 acres or a hundred acres. Which is a lot in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, it's pretty rural where I grew up. So it's not like, it's not like what you'd think of when you think of New York, it's like cow country. I mean, there's more cows than there are people and it's not crowded at all. It's very small town. Yeah. I just, when I guess when I say part of the world, I mean, the Midwest, you could, you could have, oh, a, sure. you could, where I grew up in Michigan, if you, if, if it was the right 90 acres, you would never have to hunt anywhere else. Oh, right. You know? Yeah. Oh, sure. And out here where I live now, 90 acres isn't even enough to get started. You know? Right. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So, you, there's your childhood. What's next? Well, I, uh, I joined the military, and so I got to go all around the world, and, and I traveled all over the place, and I thought, and I started to hunt, um, like, bow hunt. That was the first thing I actually did because you could bow hunt earlier in life. You could bow hunt when you were, I think, 14. And I didn't really have anyone to take me hunting. So I figured, well, that was if I was going to go, that was how I was going to have to do it. So I went to a bow hunter education course and I got that done. And I started bow hunting and I got a, my first deer when I was, I think, 14 or 15. On, on the a, family farm? Yeah, right there on the 90 acres. And, uh, and I was really super proud of myself. My aunt butchered it and she showed us how, and that was really cool. So that was neat. Like that was like the best thing ever. I was like excited by that. And then, um, so it really fueled my passion to do it. But then I joined the military and left and, um, I got to see all kind of different, like just, there's so many different places that I went to that I got to experience like Germany, for example, like there's like the pay to hunt model is all that exists. And like, that was so disappointing to me. Cause I was like, Oh man, I'm in a place where there's these stag and all these other kinds of things and even bird hunting. And 
I, I don't know about the rules for small game hunting because um, I wasn't even the the way the rules were in the late nineties. I wasn't even allowed to take firearms when I went to Germany. Um, but there was hunting clubs where you'd like pay to be a member and you'd pay to use a gun and you'd pay to like you'd have a professional, basically a professional hunter would have to take you as a guide so that you didn't break any of their rules or whatever. So like I saw that pay to hunt model and I'm just like, oh, I'm not interested in that at all. Like that just really, I couldn't believe people live that way and like people didn't just, couldn't just go out and hunt on their own. But And by this point in your life, you're way past that, just that first deer. I mean, you've been a hunter for a while now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd hunted um, all kind of small game. I mean, we hunted small game um, that whole time. I'd gotten a deer, um, uh, several deer. I'd been bear hunting one time, black bear hunting, uh, which we weren't successful, but... We, Oddly enough, we also went with muzzle loaders and it was raining. So I was like terrified the whole time that something bad was going to happen with this black bear hunt. But so, yeah, I, I, well, I, you were, by the time you went to G- Germany, you were a fully fledged outdoorsman. You, oh, you know, sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. You were like 19 or something like that. Yeah. I was, uh, I think I turned, I think I turned 22 the first year I was there. Okay. I think I got there when I was 21 and I turned 22 shortly after that. I don't mean to belabor all this. I don't, I don't know that. We, oh no. Yeah. I don't know how much, uh, detail to go into, but yeah. So then where have you been since the military? What have you been doing? Um, well, so I went all over the, I, I've been all over the U S um, I was in Missouri and I lived in, um, North Carolina for a while. And I started to see like, and I think that was around the time when I lived in North Carolina was the time where social media started kind of, and I started seeing people that like, you just kind of knew they had no business being out hunting and you'd talk to them and they'd be like, Oh man, well, I saw this guy, you know, on Instagram or on Facebook. And back then, of course, there was like mostly Facebook stuff, but this is say, what 2010 ish or, ah, uh, I would say it's more like 15 probably. Okay. Maybe, maybe 14 or 15. Cause I know I got there in 14. I think so. Maybe the first hunting season I was there for was 15, but I had friends of mine who were like, Oh, you hunt. Right. And I was like, yeah, I hunt. And they're like, Oh man, I really want to get into this. I saw this guy on TV and he was hunting and it just looks so cool. And I'm like, uh, I don't think you should go. <laughs> There's like, I don't really know. Because they'd ask me, like, where do I need to go? And I'm like, man, I don't know. I, I'm like the last person you want to ask about North Carolina. I just got here. Mm-hmm. So I kind of sort of, not selfishly, but I kind of downplayed it because it's like, I didn't want to be responsible for them to have a bad learning environment or whatever. Uh, you were unwilling to mentor them? Um, they like they'd ask, well, they'd go ask ahead. me questions. Um, and so it was, it was a weird situation where I lived in North Carolina. I lived, uh, in a, I lived in a pretty big city, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And so there was no hunting right there, but you could hunt on the base. And so they had a big training area on uh, Fort Bragg and you could, but it was a really weird system where you have to like almost call in the day of, and you're entered into like a daily lottery for the most part. And that's how they select like which areas geographically you're allowed to hunt. But it's almost like the day of, or some days it's the day before that you have to do all that. So it's really figuring it out on the fly. I mean, you're, you you really can't plan 
uh, much beyond, you know, maybe a, a day or two in advance of knowing where you're even going to be set up. All right. So these guys, folks that are coming to you for advice, they're, they're fellow enlisted folk that want sure. to, to hunt this, this. Yeah. At Fort, at Fort Bragg. Yeah. And they'd okay. ask me like, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, man, I'm not doing much of anything because I can't seem to figure this out. I, I get called, I get a, I got to call in at like three in the morning or four in the morning and uh, try to get into an area. And like, if the area is all full, then you got to try to get into another. There's like 50 something areas probably. Jeez. How many acres are there? Um, man, I, I really don't know how big it is, but there's a large training area. I mean, they shoot artillery there and they do okay. a lot of airborne operations. So there's a, is it one a, party per, per area or no, there's, um, depending on the number of acres, they have pretty much a, um, like a limit. So like maybe four people will get to hunt in this 25 acre little area and maybe eight people will get to hunt in this hundred acre area over here. Gotcha. I, and I don't know that there's a formula that's direct correlation to size, but each one has a certain number of parties allowed in it. Okay. And you, and you have like a, um, a card that you have to call a number and you give them, give them the like ID number off your card. And that's how they basically tell you, they assign you to that area for the day. Okay. All right. We're, we're a half hour in. We haven't even gotten to the meat yet. So oh. uh, take me through the rest of your, <laughs> take your, give me, give me the cliff notes on your. On yeah. Your so that, so that became hand. like my first experience really with a lot of the public land hunting. So then I, I, I got out of the military about uh, three years after that, and I retired in Alabama. And when I, as soon as I lived there, as soon as I lived there for a few months, I was like, man, you know, now that I'm retired, I've got all this extra time. I still work, but um, I want to buy some property and I want to have the, like the private land experience. So I bought, uh, I ended up, there was 40, right around four, it was right about 40 acres. It went up for sale and it was about a mile and a half from my house. So I bought the land, me and my wife bought the land. What year is this now? Uh, this was, it was the end of 2018. Okay. And, uh, I was like, man, that'll be perfect. Now I get to see all these deer and I'll have like all these deer right at my, you know, right there in my, you know, I'll be able to pattern them out and I won't have any people interfering with that. And I was like, well, this is super cool. So I put some, so I started going online and finding out like, what's the best thing to do for like food plots. And I planted a few small food plots, which. Um, I didn't have any equipment, so it was all by hand. So they ended up like pretty small food plots. And then I was like working at a crane company and my boss, he was a huge, um, new hunter and he was really into hunting, but, and he had all sorts of money cause he was like the owner of the company. And he said, yeah, you got what you got to do is clear cut a bunch of it and then you'll be able to see the deer real easy. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. Cause I don't want to make a huge mess. I just want to get in there and learn the deer and. He said, well, you got to put feeders out. And I was like, oh yeah, I should feed the deer. So I got, so I, I built some corn feeders and I fed them some corn and oats and stuff like that. And I was like, then they legalized hunting over bait in Alabama. That It was either that year or the second year I was there. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to shoot them at the feeder. I grew up not being able to shoot them at the feeder. I'm not going to shoot them at a feeder now. Right. And, um, Alabama's uh, the way they did it was they do a $15 permit and you can hunt over bait so that you can hunt over baited, uh, um, deer 
if you pay the fifteen dollars for the permit, which I think is kind of weird, but that's just Wait how minute, they did you know, it. Hey, there's an extra permit if you want to hunt over bait. Yeah. And what did yep. it? What did it? If I ask somebody from <laughs> from Alabama, what a fishing game? What is it called? Uh, I think it's the um. Let's see, Alabama Department of Environment or no Department of Fish and Wildlife, I think. Okay, so if yeah. I asked them what this fifteen bucks was for, what would they say? Oh, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. But, mm. um, I, I mean, in my mind, I hope it's for like improvements on wild lands. But you know, I don't know that they just approved it as like this weird thing because they said, "Well, we're already letting people bait for hogs because the invasive feral pigs or whatever." Yeah. So you're allowed to do it for hogs. And I was like, well, if you could do it for hogs, why, you know, it's not such a big deal, like moralistically for deer. Why, you know, why would it be more so for feral hogs? And they're like, well, so they just did it. I think they just did it, you know, to raise revenue. Mm. Okay. Well, the so the first year that they did well, it. Let's, like, let's, uh, let's, let's, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Finish this, but before you tell your story about when you moved away from Alabama recently. Let's let let's uh let David give us his history. Oh, okay. Yeah, they so instead of doing the permit thing, I was like, well, I'm not going to hunt them over bait because I just don't feel like that's. I wasn't ra- I was raised like completely counter that, and I maybe that was the whole squirrel thing coming back to me, but I just wouldn't do it. And I said something to work about it, and my boss said, "Well, you're. I mean, you're sitting right by your feeder, right?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not. I didn't get the bait permit. I'm not going to hunt them over the bait." He's like, "Well, if you get if you." got to shoot a deer that you're going to put on Facebook to be proud of. You're going to have to sit right over your bait pile. He's like, cause everyone else is going to bait and they're just going to pull them off. Your you're land. kidding like, me. Yeah, no, I mean, he literally, I mean, he was like, yeah, if you, any deer worth posting online and he says, you're going to have to be sitting on some. Unbelievable. Corners. Yeah. That's use those like, words. <laughs> yeah. That's what I think is going on subliminally in hunting. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know it was like overt with some people like, Oh that. yeah. Yeah, he he's in a hunting club where uh, they have um, big money if you shoot a deer that's less than a certain number of inches. I mean, it's like a fine, you know, you you get fined pretty much. It's him and a bunch of other uh, fairly wealthy folks, and they raise the de- pretty much raise the deer. I mean, I don't think it's in an enclosure exactly, but it's yeah. I mean, they're it's pretty much their little hunt club area. And they um, they get they find each other if they shoot a deer that they consider is too small. Yeah. So David, tell us tell us what you tell tell us what you think about that part of the story. <laughs> uh, I mean, it Texas is all about you know, which is where da- and, which is where David is from. Yes, I, I where I uh, where I, live I just meant like the part where he, it's the guy. This is your boss says the only way you're going to yeah. get a deer worth putting on the internet is if you oh over. yeah it's unbelievable and i mean all the guys well, i hunted with hunted i mean all the guys i worked with pretty much hunted and they were all into like i mean they were posting i mean we'd be sitting in cranes you know 100 yards from each other and they'd be sending each other facebook things and like jokes and stuff so i mean they lived on facebook but and, the thing that comes to mind to me then is would these guys even have an interest in hunting? Yeah. Were were it not for the Facebook part? And that's what started 
that's the like that's why at the end of the day I'm opposed to hunting social media is because I think hunting opportunities precious precious and should be reserved for people that do it for hide horns meat and personal satisfaction and not like to uh draw attention to themselves so that's like really good evidence that to me that that, that that's that my suspicion that some people shoot shit so that they can show others is a is a is a motivation for hunting now people might disagree with me on whether or not that's a a valid motivation so what i'm trying to say is with my stuff is if if you don't think that's a valid motivation don't look at that stuff yeah i mean oh absolutely if you think it's a valid motivation go ahead and look at it but if you're like me and you don't think it's a valid motivation then don't but anyway david tell us about yourself uh yeah so i I grew up outside of Chicago, about 40, 45 minutes outside of Chicago, a place called Waukegan, Illinois. Uh, my dad is a lifelong hunter. He grew up hunting on our family ranch down in South Texas. I, he too, moved. am from out just outside of Chicago. I, Hinsdale is where I was born. I didn't know that. I'm also not familiar with Hinsdale. Is that like a western suburb? Or? I think it's south of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Waukegan's on the lake, on Lake Michigan, straight up, straight okay. north of Chicago. So. Uh, my dad moved up there. He was in the service, moved up there, uh, you know, basically for work and, you know, being a lifelong hunter, kept on hunting. Uh, he married my mom, her family also has history hunting. So, um, you know, I grew up, my, my first experiences hunting, we're going up to Northern Wisconsin, um, uh, across the Menominee from the UP. So kind of North, Northeast Wisconsin and had, had family on my mom's side that had some property up there, kind of swamp timber type stuff. And, uh, you know, he started bundling me up and put me at the bottom of the tree when I was probably five, you know, and we'd go up there and sit and not see any deer. And, uh, that was pretty much it for till I started hunting. And then, um, once I started hunting myself, we started doing a little bit more, um, he had other friends. So I guess, you know, just the fact that I was old enough to kind of walk around with him, we started doing more public land stuff and we do, you know, get with groups of his friends and do deer drives and stuff like that. So, um, that was pretty much it until I was, I moved down pretty much the whole family moved down here to Texas when I was about 19 and, uh, ever since then, all my hunting's been on a ranch for the most part. Uh, and the ranch was in the family for yeah, so a long he, time, right? Very long time. As as best we, the, the the house that my, you know, great, 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 great grandmother and father built um, is still standing. One wall is still standing. They built out of, out of stones that came That's from the creek. That's four greats? I believe so. It's It would be... My great grandmother's grandparents who built the house, and I believe that w- they were the second generation there. So I think we're at four grades. Mm, man, <laughs> some great, wow, some great people. <laughs> uh, but the house was built in 18, 1853. Um, you know, so that's kind of the best record of people showing up there, at least for my family. But I think it goes back a little bit longer than that. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been, I, I do hunt in public here outside of Austin just because it's quite a bit close. I live in Austin, South Texas. You know, stop and get gas and groceries and stuff like that. You're looking at four and a half, five hours. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, you know, I nowadays I probably hunt about half down there at the ranch and about half on the small pieces of public that are around me. Um, but yeah, that's you know the only places I've ever hunted is northern Wisconsin and deep South Texas and. Uh, I've hunted, you know, my entire life. I, you know, I, I did get kind of, uh, distracted in my early twenties with, you know, things you get distracted with around that time in your life, but never stopped hunting, um, never stopped loving hunting. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. And just, I guess, recently over the past couple of years, I've definitely taken up even, uh, you know, how do I put it been even more kind of enthralled with it, I guess, you know, settling down and having a family and, the prospect of being able to pass on that tradition to my, my kids has kind of drawn me even deeper into it. And now it's, you know, it's just about all I want to do other than hang out with them. So. So would you mind telling us about you, you stand to inherit the ranch. Right. And t- tell us and, and, and tell, so tell us about the hunting situation there now and what you'd like it to be in the future. And then I think that that'll segue into nicely into what Mike's land that he owns and, and what he's done there with the hunting situation since he's moved away. Sure. Uh, and Mike, and Mike didn't, Mike, you didn't get to that yet where that you recently moved away from Alabama to Kentucky. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah. Uh, the the theme here is is about people that own land and have concern for their fellow hunters and that's what we're exploring in this episode so yeah david tell us tell us about the hunting situation on your ranch yeah so we uh you know my family has leased that land out to hunters for uh generations you know um I guess I'm not super knowledgeable on when leasing started or how it became such a big thing in South Texas, but I guess just due to the fact that it's all so, you know, it's privately owned exclusively, basically there is nowhere public to hunt. And you basically have these giant tracts of land um, that are owned by, you know, one person basically can have hundreds of thousands of acres over time. Maybe that gets broken down into smaller parcels, but it's all private. So um, you know, going back to at least my great grandparents, they leased that land. At first it was to a nearby ranch, uh, and, uh, basically they let, let leased it to them and that ranch would bring people out to hunt there. Um, since then, you know, we've started leasing it out ourselves. We leased so they it would out, the neighbors would outfit your ranch. Right. Yeah. They being a much larger ranch, I guess, just had more connections to people and were able to kind of secure those leases better where, you know, my ancestors were cattle ranchers. You know, that's what they did first and foremost. They subsisted on game. Uh, you know, they, they never ate beef. They, they lived on game, mostly small game and uh, would lease out the ranch for deer. You know, they'd shoot deer occasionally, but down there gets so hot that, um, you know, they didn't have electricity until the 60s. So, you know, you you hunt small game on a daily basis and that's what you live off of, you know, in the winter time, maybe shoot a couple deer and make 
uh, you know, they call it machacao, dried, dried venison, basically jerky. Um, and, uh, but yeah, they, they, they would lease out the land to the neighboring ranch that was much bigger and had more connections. And then, you know, as at some point, you know, I, I, I suppose it was probably my dad who was the first one who started leasing it out on his own. Um, you know, being that he was up in Chicago or around Chicago at that time, he would basically lease it to a cousin of his who was basically the outfitter at that point where he would, you know, collect so much money from my, my, uh, my uncle, his cut, you know, it's his cousin, I guess it's not my uncle, but, uh, and then he would outfit it and bring people on. And then, you know, once we moved down here, he kind of started doing it himself and actually finding hunters. And we've had, you know, more or less the same core group of two or three guys. And then, you know, total, there's been somewhere between four and six people that lease it. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a, a, rotating door of guys who kind of come and go, but, you know, sort of the same core group has been out there for a while. But they're not, people that, you're, I gather they're not people you're particularly close with. No, you know, and I, uh, not to say there's, uh, there's anything wrong with them or, right. you know, they're, they're yeah. certainly not bad people in any way, but, um, you know, basically that that's a, a working relationship when we, when we are out there at the same time, you know, you, uh, you know, you're friendly kind of, it gets a little awkward sometimes, you know, just as an example, I, I remember a couple of years ago, we were out there and one of the hunters had brought out his, uh, I believe it was his grandson and his son-in-law or something like that. And we were all coming back from hunting that afternoon. We're sitting around a campfire and, uh, the, this guy we leased to his son-in-law starts talking about what they saw. And he's, you know, going on about this big buck he saw he, that they had seen, and the guy we leased to kind of half jokingly kind of nudged me. He says, you're not supposed to tell him that, you know, mm -hmm. I guess idea right, being yeah. that, you know, they don't want us to know when they see big stuff because they can kind of, uh, cause you, you might know. up the, up the rate on them. It, yeah, exactly. You know, and which, how many you know, people, like the guy, the people that lease the ranch get to hunt there and yeah. then how, and then a few family members. Well, you know, that's, <laughs> kind of up for discussion you know that we've we've always been pretty lenient as far as them bringing guests uh one of the one of the reasons being is it's just quite remote you know it's 20 miles on a, a, a dirt road that can be pretty treacherous at times and it's it's quite remote and you know being close to the border you have you know immigrants come through that you know it, it's just uh some people can be uncomfortable with that kind of thing um, and so we've been pretty lenient where, you know, people want to bring just not to be out there alone. You know, they want to have somebody out there in case something goes wrong or there's, you know, an emergency that um, would call for having help there. But, um, you know, we, we've always been pretty lenient if they want to bring family members and stuff like that. But it can it's it's the kind of thing where uh, when I said family members, I meant you. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so I hunt it. You know, my dad doesn't hunt much anymore. Um, and honestly, as far as our immediate family, that's pretty much it. You know, I've, I've brought friends down several times, but, uh, and, I'm they, being honest, and, and that's like, you get to hunt there, even though it, it's leased out. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's something that my dad's always been very, uh, adamant about is that is different from a lot of leases where he, uh, he, whoever we lease to it's, it's never been up for discussion, whether or not we're able to hunt, hunt the place. Okay. Um, Yeah. And okay, now we have a sense for what the hunting situation is like there now. What do you, what do you, what do you, what are your, 
reservations about that system going forward and, and what are you playing with like in terms of ideas about what you want it to be later on in life? Yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, I never gave much thought to it, um, until fairly recently. Um, you know, it's, it's just such, it's such a part of the culture down there, leases and leasing land and leasing out land that you own that I never really thought too much about it. You know, in in South Texas, like I said, there just is really no public land. So if you want to hunt, it's just kind of understood that you either own property or you lease property. And, uh, I guess the more I think about it and the more I learn about and hunt on public land um, here in Texas and understand how precious that is and the fact that it's it's uh, it's not easy, especially if you don't have money to get on a place to hunt here. Um, I don't know. I guess I just want to, to bring uh, – I want to feel better about that, you know? Like it doesn't necessarily feel good to think about selling wildlife in a sense, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think that's really how it was supposed to be. You know, I I think that everybody should be entitled to access to to wildlife, you know, get sticky when it's all uh, private land and you have to navigate those kind of waters. But um, I guess I just don't want to feel like I'm taking part in a system, taking part in a system that I don't necessarily agree with, you know, I've the leasing has just kind of been what was going on, but it's not necessarily the vision that I see for the ranch. What I would like to see is more people have access to it and specifically more people that are willing to work for that access and, and provide something in return, you know? Yeah. Like up here, we have this program, uh, adopt a ranch. It's run by pheasants forever, I believe. And, uh, where folks do work on do work on ranches uh, to facilitate access to those to to those ranches. Also, I am involved in a little group that's just getting started. Our nascent little group is just having our first fundraiser in on January twentieth at Odium Brewing in Miles City, Montana, at six p.m. Uh, and our group is this is very relevant so our group is raising money to buy appreciation gifts for farmers and ranchers that allow public hunting through the block management program and the block management program is a program that compensates landowners for allowing public access uh for hunting and uh used and it's funded through primarily out-of-state hunting license fees but the amount that these ranchers and farmers receive is it's not competitive with what they could get if they were to go with an outfitter so it's incumbent on the sportsmen to uh, go the extra mile to show how much they appreciate the act access to these places i think that that like what you're describing so the way you're you would this would work is that you'd have group folks that lent a hand around there and showed that they um cared about the place and cared about the access and then in exchange for that they'd get um hunting privileges is that what you're looking at yeah i you know the thing with 
the lease, you know, the thing with how we lease it is so such a large percentage of that money just goes back into that branch as far as improvements that need to be done Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it's like, (laughs) um, you know, what I guess there's probably some people out there that think of what it's like to be a landowner in Texas leasing out your land. And maybe there's like a picture of what that person looks like as far as, you know, how comfortably they can live off that money they make. And it's just like, it's, it's not that much. And especially when you consider the costs that go back into the ranch, you know, we have cattle out there. It's, um, you know, the fences, half of them are down or go or are damn near down. You know, there's a little shack out there that everybody stays in, um, that constantly needs improvements. There's no running water, you know, it's all rain, rain caught water. Um, you know, there's just a million things that, and don't get me wrong. I'm, it's, it's a blessing to have it. And I'm, I feel tremendously lucky and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, you know, but it's just, uh, it's like, so much of that money just goes directly back into the ranch and projects for the ranch that it's kind of like, I don't see why it wouldn't be possible and preferable to me to just have people that are willing to put put in some work, you know, help stretch fence, help, you know, clear brush, help whatever it might be, um, just to kind of cut out, like cut the money out of, you know, it's like, yeah, it, it just, it, it feels less icky to me, you know, I, maybe that, Maybe I'm just kind of splitting hairs and it's not such a big deal, but it's, uh, I don't know. I just, I guess, and, and I'd prefer if more people had the opportunity to do that at the end of the day, if, if it's, if I'm collecting, uh, lease money from a certain amount of people and those are the only ones that get to hunt it outside of me, it's like, well, you know, I'd rather a, a whole bunch of people, as long as those people are willing to put in some work and help us out and, um, kind of do their part to, to, to keep to make it so that we can hang on to the land, you know? Yeah. There's two parts to that. Like the, the part where it's more people, I, that part is easy for me to get my head around that, that if, you know, it's the, the big, a big problem in hunting today is that there's just a small handful of people that have a lot of land at their disposal for hunting. And, and then, many, many people scrunched onto small areas. And so that part like is easy. It's easy to get my head around why that's better while that, but the other part where it's labor versus money. I mean, I don't know for me. It's like, I would, I, okay. I wouldn't pay to hunt. I just don't have any interest in that. Now, would I go help out on a property in exchange for hunting access? Yeah, I would do that. Uh, What I do, what I've been doing is doing work on properties, labor with groups of people to facilitate access, not just for myself, but for everybody that wants to hunt there. That's been where I've been going with my like advocacy or my, like (laughs) my paying to hunt is that, um, Mm -hmm. is trying to make it so that everybody, but, but in an alter, in, in an alternate universe where I was like, I either am going to do labor 
to, to secure access or I'm going to pay to secure access. I would do labor. I would rather not hunt than pay money. Right. Uh, so it sounds like we we both have that kind of thing where it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't particularly know, you know, it's like, well, you either work to get the money to pay it or you just do the work to get the access, but yeah. something about it feels less icky, you know? And it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's tough, man. It's like my dad always said, you know, it's like when you own land in Texas, you have no problem finding friends around hunting season. Oh, you know, sure. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's like, I, I, I have no doubt that if, you know, I put up the bat signal and said, you know, Hey, come hunt. We find a ton of people that want to do it, but you know, is anybody going to be out there next to me burning cactus in August when it's 115 degrees and there's been no rain for the past three months. And, you know, maybe, and like, maybe that's, maybe that's the difference. Maybe that's a part of the diff is part of it is the, the, the guy, the gal or guy that shows up and helps out in the middle of the summer, they're demonstrating that hunting is more important to them. And that right. maybe that's, maybe that's what, uh, I don't know. That just goes a long way. It's like how, well, you're going to weed people out. Right. And you know, yeah. you want to talk about good or bad motivations. What better way to weed out the people that aren't really interested in, you know, really interested in, you know, I, I can understand somebody just cutting a check and going there and shooting a big buck and putting it on Instagram. Is that same person going to be willing to go out there and stretch fence or, you know what I mean? frame a shed or whatever it is and a hundred degree weather, like are, are they still going to be willing to, to, to put that effort in for that, for that, that chance, you know, yeah. or is it just about, is it just about, you know, I got a cushy job. I'm, I make a decent amount of money. I'll cut the check to, to be able to go out there. Yeah. So I, you know, it's just kind of like a, a vetting process, you know, or could be. No, oh, I'm looking forward to the sorts of people I'm going to get to meet with this, this group that we're starting here because they're, you know, most, a, a large share of the people that hunt out in Eastern Montana are not from here, but yeah. I know that there'll be some number that come here from uh, further West where our population centers are to help out with this. And like, that's like the sort of, people that would look that are looking out for their hunting their november hunting in june are people that are that are that i care about you know that's the kind of person people that uh i want to have good experiences you know and yeah. so uh i've even had people say that i told about that i've told about told about what we're doing on the podcast, et cetera, they've said that they'll come out here and help, even though they've never hunted in Montana and probably never will. You know, I think it's something that's in the air that people want to, they see hunting access getting more and more constricted, more and more commercialized, more and more uh something quality access is something that's reserved for the wealthy and there's something that just people repel against that um i i've been 
I've been trying to elicit, get donate, elicit donations and gifts for this thing that we're doing here in town. And I, when I tell local businesses, what we're up to, even people that don't hunt, like I go in there, we're, we're looking for donations and they'll, they're like, I immediately, they get it. Even the yeah. people that don't hunt, they're like, yeah, you know, uh, we don't want this to be a big, a big money thing. We want to have, we want to have it. The local sportsmen have some place they can go. So I don't yeah. know. Well, it just, you know, it, it, yeah. I mean, it's like a, you know, a bartering kind of system where it's like, that just feels good. You know, yeah. it feels good. Yeah. Like I, you know, if my neighbor's got this and I want this, uh, if my neighbor's got this, I've got this, like, let's work out a deal, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it, there's just something more uh, that it just feels right. You know, it feels better than going to the store and picking something off the shelf, you know, and that's kind of like the idea with hunting, right. Is it's procuring something, you know, I, I think the way you put it is by your own wits, you mm-hmm. know, right. And right. Or by your own hand, you know, it's like, uh, it, it feels good to do something without having to pull out the checkbook. You know, it feels good to go out and be able to secure meat without having to just pay somebody. Right. You know, and yeah. I think it kind of speaks to that. Like it, the same thing with the access, you know, they, it's kind of the access comes before the, the meat itself, right? Rather than just pulling out the checkbook to get the access, what are you willing to do? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just something distinctly different about helping out on a place as opposed to paying. I don't know what yeah. that is, but yeah. Uh, you, well, I, mean, I, I could I could steal, man, the opposite argument. You know what? I could I could be like, why is that? more virtuous than me who just who i'm now playing the part of somebody that does lease land why is that more virtuous than me going to my work and doing what i do best making money and then just paying for the access now there's one component of that where it's where we just where we're just talking about if if you're if only a small handful of people get to experience it under that model, then that's, that's a clear difference, but there's, it's more than that. It's more than that. There's just something different. There's something, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of hardworking, good people that just still don't have a lot of money to pay for hunting, you know? And it's like, yeah, if it's like, if if the buried entry is only money, you know, Mm. uh, like, Okay, well, yeah, sure. There's probably good, hardworking people who have money. Sure, they get access too, but like the good and hardworking part's got to be there, and that doesn't always cut. You know, the money doesn't always necessarily associate one for one with that, right? Like, there's there's good, hardworking people who just don't have the money who also deserve a place to hunt. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. This is really salient to me because that. I mean, I'm, I'm I've gotten to a point now where I'm facilitating this i'm in in essence facilitating labor in exchange for access and there's something that just feels really right about that compared to money for access so i don't know i gotta spend some time figuring a better way obviously of articulating why that feels right to me you know yeah but all right uh mike tell us tell us about what you did with your property when you moved away. 
So about a year and a half ago, I got a job offer that I couldn't refuse up here in Louisville, Kentucky. Doing what? And so I, uh, still, still working, uh, manufacturing and crane work. I, I, I run a crane. That's what I do. Um, but I'm working at a manufacturing facility. So instead of being like outside on a crane, I'm like wearing indoor cranes. <clears throat> and so a lot less hours working four days a week instead of like six and a half days a week. And so I was like, I really couldn't refuse the job. Got the offer, um, kind of short notice. And then, so we knew we were going to move up here cause I couldn't commute eight and a half, nine hours. And so I said, uh, we talked to our neighbors who we'd talked to. They bought their land uh, right next door to our land, maybe three months after we bought ours. And I said, Hey, you know, we're moving up to Kentucky. And in the meantime, uh, if you guys would keep, keep an eye on our land and kind of keep the trails up and stuff, you could hunt on it all year long. And I'd had um, several offers to lease, to put it into a lease. And uh, all the people I knew that were asking me to lease it, I kind of knew how they live and I knew how they hunt. And I was really just opposed to the idea of them coming out there and trashing it and leaving beer cans all over and all that kind of thing. So I said, uh, you know, we talked to, we called up our neighbors. My wife had their cell phone number because they'd they'd met several times while we were out there doing some work on trails. But you're not close with them? Uh, Not in the sense that like we don't do dinners or anything like that together or anything like that but we've always like they were out there clearing some land at the same time we were out there doing work and they'd be out there with their horses and um we'd be out there you know on the four-wheeler working on food plots and stuff and so we'd see them and just always be cordial and you know hey how's it going and they're like oh good you know how's you seen any deer you seen any turkeys that sort of thing just kind of small talk and they were telling us their plan for their land was to eventually build a, a workshop out there for him to work on race cars and all that. But they were going to keep the back, let's say, three quarters of their land kind of pristine for deer habitat because they all, they all three of them hunted the, uh, the man, the woman, and their, I think he was about 10 years old son. And so kind of knowing that when we moved away, I was like, I really don't want our land to become like a hangout for people that are wanting to look for a place to cook meth or grow marijuana because there is kind of a, like even our land will get people littering on it at times. You know, we put up a gate and at one time there was like people would throw litter over the gate and it was just, it was so frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. It was so frustrating. And, uh, which is weird because like they pick up the large items for trash, even for free for the County, which I don't understand why anyone would litter on someone else's land. If they just pick it, you could set it by the road and no one would have a problem with it. But somebody threw a TV over our gate one day and I was just like super mad about it. Yeah. The times I've been in the countryside in Georgia and Alabama, the amount of trash is unbelievable. It really is amazing. I, I don't understand it. And, and I mean, the county we lived in literally picks it up for free. You just have to set it out by the road. <laughs> so they worked harder to throw it over our gate yeah. than they could have just left it. <laughs> if they'd left it by the road, it would have got picked up by the, I, I just don't understand it. I don't, but um, I mean, there's, there's something fun about smashing a TV. I'm not saying they did the right thing, but I mean, I mean that, that, true, true. I mean, that then, could, what's the story? There's like some famous story about Elvis. Did he shoot a TV? Oh, I, I don't know. 
I've, I've been to Graceland. I know there he had like some room that had it was like a whole wall of TVs. I mean, he, he, he either, shot, he either shot a TV or, or I think he shot it. But anyway, and maybe that's what they do. Maybe they had to throw it over the gate so they could shoot at it. Maybe they didn't feel comfortable right. shooting at it right at the road. You know, right? That, that's a possibility, I suppose. But uh, so, anyways, uh, I yeah, he shot wife, it. He shot it. Yeah. I just verified. But. <laughs> he shot the TV. Yeah. So, so my wife, so I said, you know, maybe we should see if our neighbors would keep an eye on the place for us while we're gone. We didn't really know how long we were going to be gone. I didn't know if it would be like a full time. I didn't know if it'd be a permanent relocation. I kind of assumed it would be. I said, but, but you, you were know, like, for- you were open to coming back. You're like, I'm going to try this job. If I don't like it, we're moving. Oh back. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, in it, and I may still go back down there at some point. And that's sort of the re, kind of the reason we kept the land. We didn't want to give up everything that we had. We, we bought it at a good price. I thought, you know, what, what we got a, was a good deal on it. And, uh, so I said, well, let's just have them keep an eye on it while we're gone and they can cut small trees. They can you know, keep the trails up and they can keep basically just an eye on. We we did have a couple of times where we had people trespassing to hunt and we had to kind of talk to them and they'd be like, Oh, this, this used to be old man, uh, strength's place. And we used to hunt it. And so, you know, we figured we could still hunt it. And I was like, Oh, well, well we bought it, at, you know, a year ago or whatever. And I'd be more than happy to keep you out here hunting, but I just, I'm already out here hunting right now. So, you know, if you just let me know, and they weren't open to that. They they didn't like that idea. They so I don't know if they really had permission before or not. But what do you, they, mean, uh, what do you mean they weren't open to it? They, they didn't um, have much choice, did they? No, no, they weren't open to the idea of like having a having like an adult conversation about them hunting it as well. Because I'd have been more than happy to let them hunt it on days, you know that. I mean, because there was one area that I kind of set aside about a. So third they were of, like. They were like, well, I'm going to pack up my toys and never come back. Yeah, they were kind of like, they they didn't want to even talk. They were just like, no, I'll just leave. That's fine. Okay, gotcha. And I was like, well, gotcha. I don't I don't know that. And then one, one guy actually took off running, like running through the woods. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess he didn't want to talk about it. I guess he didn't want to get caught at all because I don't... <laughs> Yeah, well, and our our neighbor actually caught the same person on their property one day, and it, uh, the, the same outcome. He like ran down a a hill and jumped a creek and went back over to our neighbor neighbors our neighbor's neighbor's property. Okay, because the the downside of our property is it borders a uh, right away for a power line, so there is really easy like if you wanted to cheat, you could walk down the power line and get to the backside of our property pretty easy. Okay, and like undetected if you want to kind of call it that yeah but so we so we called called him up and we said hey you know we've got an idea if you guys are open to it and it wouldn't be much work for you but you'd get the benefit of hunting it'll be oh yeah that would be a great opportunity and so they so we wrote up a small contract it was like a page and a half and i'm not yeah you sent it to me yeah not any sort of super legal you know no notaries involved. It was just kind of saying, Hey, just don't bury trash and, um, keep an eye on the place. And you can use all the amenities, the fire pit and the picnic table and all that. Um, and you, you and your family can hunt. And so they were open to the idea. And of course, I don't, I don't necessarily know that anyone wouldn't be open to that idea, but I mean, I turned down people willing to lease it in order to kind of do that. So (laughs) yeah. And that was the reason I kind of, 
when I started listening to your podcast, I first heard you on the Blood Origins podcast, and I had never really heard about the whole R3 thing and the whole... Um, I didn't really understand how big of a deal leasing was at the time because I hadn't really run into it myself because I'd only just hunted on military bases and what little bit of public land I could find to hunt. I would. I had a friend of mine who was father was an outfitter for geese up up in Missouri or whatever, and he was like explaining to me how the pricing works. And I'm like, man, you're just buying the animals. Like I don't get that. Like you're literally just buying the animals. They do everything but pull the trigger on your gun. Like mm-hmm. how is that hunting? Yeah. So I didn't want I didn't want to facilitate that model at all on what little bit of land I got down there. And you know, in 40 acres isn't a lot, but it's in a good spot. It's kind of on a fringe of town, so was, I do see a lot of deer there. And we've had a lot of turkeys there and I you know, taking them taking deer and turkeys every year I live there, so <clears throat> but the um yeah, they were definitely all all about it. They so they were like, "Yeah, let's let's do this thing." And so them and their kids, and they take their their horse over there, and they ride on the trails to kind of keep the trails beat down. And mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, those are. I have some other things I want to ask you about you guys about for sure, but I just those are two good examples of people that you know you guys are two good examples of people that are hunters that have an inkling. You have a, a sense in your hearts that looking out for other hunters is, um, just the right thing to do. And, um, you know, it's funny just today before I got on, on this podcast, I've had, I've had this guy, I have a few allies now, which is really nice. And some of them, it's been a really, it's been a really interesting process to see who is, who reaches out to me. That's just making noise and who really is willing, believes enough in what I'm doing to try to help. And it's not what I'm doing at that point. It's what we're doing. Uh, But this guy has, this young fellow has been quantifying the number of animals the hunting luminaries have killed in the calendar year 2022. And when I juxtapose what goes through your heads as I hear your stories with people that, well, my last guest, Aaron Snyder, shot who shot 20 five or more animals big game animals in the last calendar year um and i look at this excel spreadsheet that my friend uh put together and it's got like 10 of the luminaries and some of them like cam haynes six elk um but and many many other animals and I just, it makes me depressed because I'm like, so much of what I think it would take to make, to prevent hunting from becoming a rich man's game would be hunters looking out for other hunters. And then I see what, what's being modeled to people as success, what's being modeled to people as, yeah, the pinnacle of being a good hunter 
is not that. It's not yeah. it's not sharing at all. It's uh so I guess the question that comes to mind is for me is I think there's a lot of goodness in people. I tend to I err on the side of that people are are decent. Like I try, I spend a lot of time. I like a lot of my decision making in life is just trusting in the kindness of the world. I rarely lock my house, and I'm gone a lot. Um, I just I don't know. I I just think that of people. My default is that people are good people, but. Um, I wonder sometimes are are hunters more selfish than other people? Are hunters more selfish than non-hunters, or are they or or are they selfish when it comes to hunting? I don't know. What do you guys think about that? And if they're not selfish, if we're if hunters aren't more selfish than the general populace, then why are the luminaries? so selfish at least i don't know maybe you don't even agree that they're selfish but it's no i mean i yeah i it's um you know it's probably a, a, a sample size problem because you know like you're saying it's like that's a very small group of people killing but a they're the large, top people right they're the top right. people you know so right. I, go ahead i'm sorry well yeah i mean it's it's like I don't think hunters are selfish people, but I don't know when you're talking about somebody shooting 20 plus animals in a year, whether they're sharing it with other people or not, it's like, uh, I don't, I don't think that's the point. You know what I mean? It's like, there's other people who would like those opportunities. So yeah. at some, at some point it's like, you know, if, if you're this guy who's shooting 20 animals in a year, it's like, well, why not find somebody like literally anybody who doesn't have that same opportunity and take, like, be their guy, take them out there, let show them how to do it, let them do it and let them do what they want with the meat rather than feeling like you have to secure all this wild game for all these people that, you know, which, you know, it's like, it's not just an issue about the meat. It's an issue about the opportunity to get the meat for yourself, you know? So yeah. You know, all these people that you feed this, this meat to, um, you know, it's not just about the meat. It's like, yeah, you could, you know, you, if, if I listened to, I listened to the episode, you know, and I, I thought he was clearly an intelligent, he's obviously a great hunter. He's obviously doing a lot of cool things, but yeah, like I had working, a very hard time disliking him. Like, right. That, that's a stupid way of putting it. I, I like right. him, you know, yeah. I, 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 I spit on that. I spit on I just couldn't be more opposed right. to shooting that number of animals. I couldn't be more opposed to putting half of them on social media. Right. Um, well, it's like, you know, it's like if you're working out with all these rangers and stuff, like why not buy a cow and, and use that to feed all these people that you feed and let somebody else have the opportunities to go after, you know, wild game and do this hunting for themselves. Yeah. Especially when you consider all the people, all the people that go like elk, success rates in montana for this is just an example man is are less than 10 percent. so all yeah. of the people that would just love to have the opportunity to harvest and eat one elk 
Right. And I don't think at at the end of the day, we're there for the experience too, right? Like it's not just about getting the meat, you know, it's like, we could all just go to the grocery store or go, you know, if if you're concerned about the ethics of it, go, go meet a local rancher and get the meat from them. But like, we're all looking for that opportunity to do it for ourselves and do it in a way that, um, you know, to hunt, you know, to be able to go hunt. So it's not just about securing meat. It's about having the experience. And there's a lot of people that don't get the experience because there's just not the experiences to be had. Beautifully put Mike, where do you come down on that? Yeah. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a greed thing or if it's a, um, it's almost like they're searching for that validation that they don't get because we live in an easy kind of an easy existence. You know, I don't know if they're just, out there to show how hard they are. I really don't. I'm kind of like you, I think in, in the sense that I want to believe that there's a lot of good in people and that their, their sense of doing what's societally right is going to override, you know, let's say to keep them from poaching, for example. Um, but at the end of the day, I also see a lot of people who, in fact, this year I saw somebody who I passed up, several really small deer and i watched one walk away that probably was a white-tailed deer that weighed probably less than 80 pounds and i'm like okay i don't i don't need to shoot a deer that badly that i'm going to shoot a deer that small and probably about four or five minutes later i saw three hunters shoot that deer and in this three three they get all three shot it a a party of three yeah exactly and that's i mean that's just a it, and that's, that's that'd be a that's small kind of, deer that just had a lot of meat ruined, probably. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean and, that and that's, meat left at that point. Yeah, and I mean that's a thumbnail of what I dealt with all year hunting public land. So you know, I myself have, have got land, and I'm still hunting the public land. But and that's really kind of the thumbnail of what I get to see. And I, and I don't understand why someone would be so. Why would they be so? Um, driven to shoot any game animal that they'd shoot an 80 pound deer. That's just, you know, ambling. I mean, this is all, but just in spots. I mean, probably, you know, a month before the season, it probably had spots on it. I I would assume it's a yearling deer. I I wouldn't imagine it was any more than that. Yeah. Um, but, but to just, I I don't, uh, and you know, they're not hurting for the meat because they're not getting probably (laughs) maybe they'd be lucky to get a backstrap off off of a deer that small that's worth anything. And it, and then I just, I can't understand why they would be so inclined to shoot it or whether it was, maybe they were, uh, three young hunters trying to impress each other. I, I really don't know. Well, okay. So I shot some fawns when I was a young hunter. So, and I, and that was nothing about trying to impress people. Hell, half of it was, I didn't, couldn't tell how big something was. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, half of it was like, I was really, trying to get something sure know, and here's a deer so i don't know i have way more problems with people that are highly experienced hunters killing way more than they need oh yeah, yeah no um, i i agree completely I, i'm i'm trying to get into the elk drawing this year uh this coming year in in kentucky they have a small drawing uh, they draw, I think, be- between four and 500 tags based on the population that they estimate and all that. Yeah. And uh, they do, I think, 10% non-resident tags, and then the other 90% goes to, well, 
it's actually less than 90, but out of the the remaining 90%, they go to residents and then there's a few like corporate tags and a few, uh, I think what they call a governor's tag or something like that. Mm. And they go what to not, I think what it's for the corporate they, tag. Sorry. Oh, that they go to, um, they're like outfitter tags. They go to groups that then kind of, um, they go to outfitters, I believe, and then the, the outfitters will sell that tag to a paying customer, essentially. And I think there's five or six that are donated tags that go to nonprofits, and they basically do the same thing. They pretty much do either a giveaway for that tag to raise money or – I'm not – 100% on how the tag system works, but I know that it's like 90-10 for residents, non-residents, and then there's a bunch that are given away for basically landowner tags, cooperator tags, which is, I think, people who put their land in access programs. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they have a they have a system like that, and I think it's based, I think what happens with those is that they get, um, they let a certain number of people hunt, and I've think based on the number of elk that are harvested off of their cooperator farms, they get like a cow elk tag for every five that are harvested off of their cooperator farm or something to that effect. I'm not exactly sure about how the numbers play out on it. And I think it may change every year based on acres and um, elk populations. But um, they say, they say it's like one in eight here. I know you were saying about 10% there in Montana for a success rate. And they, I think they were saying one in eight. Oh yeah. Animals. But there you guys have a way, way, way harder time getting the tag. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're in a drawing with about, I think last year they had uh, like 45,000 entries or entrants uh, in the, in the drawing. And I think they drew 500 total tags. Okay. I think it was approximately. Yeah. So it was like one in 10 or one in a hundred rather. Yeah. So Matt, you're saying 10% of all licensed hunters with an elk tag, regardless of what that tag is or where it's at, 10% of licensed hunters with an elk tag are successful. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's actually south of that a little bit, but yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, I, I, there, it, there's things, there's, there's days where I think about how much time this has taken me and I am so tempted to give up. I have a demanding job. I really have a demanding career. Um, but then there's some things like that, like it just pissed me off so bad that I can't let it go that yeah. that that the people are well and it gets it's it, it gets hard to uh um it's hard to articulate the people that are killing all this game play a large role in hunting becoming a rich man's game because it's free advertising so it's free advertising for people that want to lease out their property um it's free advertising for people that want to sell their property and so these hunting luminaries the effect is for for 
the effect they have on hunting in America is to make it more and more expensive and more and more hunting opportunity, more and more precious. And at the same time, they're gobbling up all this opportunity for themselves. And I don't know why, what, I mean, but we're complicit. This com, The sportsman's complicit in this because we look at it. If we didn't look at what they did, we didn't look at their programs or TV programs. If we didn't look at their social media accounts, they would go away. So it's just, we, we vote against our own interests with our eyeballs and with our subscriptions, right. you know, and I don't know. To me, it's just as clear as it could possibly be that that's what's going on. Um, we reward these people for killing six elk and five deer and whatever. You know, we reward them by looking at it. Um, we 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 diminish our own opportunity by looking at it. Um. But we continue to look at it, you know. I, I, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it feels like it is fundamentally changing the idea of what a hunter is. You know, it's like the the image I had of a hunter growing up was like, you know, and it, it's it's obviously going to be based partially on who you know, who is a hunter, where you're at geographically, and everything, but. uh you know, it's just like the idea of I, of what I had of what a hunter was, was just like so different than what those people are, you know, mm -hmm. as far as, you know, it's like, it, it's all about being like the big macho tough guy with the cool camo and the cool gear doing the big mountain hunt, you know, and like filming it, you got to film it, you know, and you got to put it out there for everybody to see. And it's like, I don't, I don't understand how that became so, so, uh, uh, so representative of what it is to be a hunter. Yeah. Know? That's, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Um, what that makes me think way, like the way you're describing it, I started going back to when I was a little kid and hunting wasn't cool. And no, like when I was a little kid <laughs> it, yeah, and I did it anyway. Yeah. You know, where I grew up, where I grew up, I'm, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but where I grew no, up no. was like a, a pretty, uh, you know, we were like not far from Chicago. It was like a pretty urban area. And there was times where I was like kind of ashamed of being a hunter because I, I, uh, I thought it was, you know, like it was like, you know, you're a redneck if, mm -hmm. you, if you hunt, you mm -hmm. know, and that's, and obviously that's not the light that I wanted to be portrayed in either. Um, Right. But right, just right. the idea, just like how far it's come. And in some sense, I guess, yeah, it's like, it's good that it does have more positive light shown on it. But the idea that it has to be, you know, this very specific thing that involves like traveling to all these exotic locations and hunting all these animals um, every fucking year. And, you know, just nonstop, basically like the, the, the idea that you're supposed to be a professional hunter and that's the pinnacle of hunting. I, I think it's just like a fucking joke, you know, it's like, yeah. I, I don't know. It's yeah. I wonder how, like, wouldn't it be great if, if instead of that, 
being what people were proud of. It would be improving hunting for everybody. Right. (laughs) I don't know how you instantiate that in the culture, but like you guys are two examples of that where you are looking out for other people. You're thinking about it. You know, that's what I'm all about. Like, that's what I don't even, here's the thing. Here's something like, there are people out there that care about their fellow hunters. Damn it. I am one of them. I didn't realize it. I now know (laughs) I am. I know I care about my fellow hunters. I know that I have a lot of love for them. Like this block management appreciation stuff we're doing. I don't, there are, I'll go three, four years without even stepping foot on a block management property. The guy that's the, the president of our little group, this Montana hunters for access group. He's a farm and he he's a tractor salesman and repairman. And if you don't think he has access coming out of his ass, <laughs> you, this guy, but he somehow he grew up as the whole life hunting like you two. And he just doesn't like how it's going. That it's such a struggle to find a place to go. You know, so even it's it's not it's not a threat to his hunting, this the commercialization and all that, but it, it just it, it it he's got this righteous indignation. He's like, and so he's to the point where he's working his ass off to try to maintain some access for the common man. You know, I don't know, like I guess I, I, I yeah, it it's like. When you derive so much pleasure from something your whole life, you, I guess the, there's an inc- inclination to fight for it. Yeah, well, and to and to fight for other people to be able to have that same opportunity. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's like make that cool again. You know. Yeah, like I, yeah. I, I've had yeah. about enough of of like all the cool mountain guide hunters, you know, and like all the cool camo and cool gear doing the cool hunts. It's like put the other shit front and center. You know, it's like that. That kind of always seems to be the uh you know they're always able to fall back on that it's like well at the end of the day hunting's good for conservation you know and it's kind of like it just ends there but like why can't it be more front and center why can't that be the cool thing and all the other shit's just kind of a product of it you know yeah there's a lot of uh how-to stuff like they it seems like they feel like these folks feel like that's how they're giving back is through how-to they're getting paid for that so I don't, yeah. I don't get that. And, and it's just another opportunity for them to be the dude, the, like the guy. I mean, it's just, there's nothing glamorous or glorious about, about, uh, fighting for hunting opportunity for other people. I don't, yeah. so, and but but it's like the world does it. The world doesn't need another fucking backpack review. The world needs more people talking about opportunities to create more access. Like, what can you do? And it's hard to find. It's hard to find that information, you know, especially in a place like Texas. It's like, how the fuck do I contribute to being able to not only like hunt public ground or places that are accessible to the public, but how can I help other people do the same thing? Yeah. It's like, I can find the backpack reviews, man. Like, I don't need any more of them. <laughs> you know? It's like, they all do basically the same shit anyway. Yeah. But it's like, 
you know, and I, I don't know. It's like, I, I guess that's just what get, gets the eyeballs. But at some point it's like, who cares? You know, who cares? You know, and like you've, you've talked about, it's like, if there's nowhere to go fucking use the thing, who cares? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I just don't know. I don't know if it's possible to get people to change their perspective a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think you've started the conversation, you know, I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but like what listening to you, listening to your podcast, like resonated in this deep way that, you know, like I said, none of the other hunting podcasts that I've tried to listen to do, you know, it's like, it's just boring. Like the gear stuff, the the tactics, like it's just boring. I love to hunt, you know, but I like to do it. You know, I don't, it's like music, you know, it's like, I don't want to listen to somebody talk about how to do it. I just want to go do it. Yeah. And, and yeah. so you know, something about your, what you're doing resonated in this deep way. And I, I, can I ask like, has, as are you getting more views than two months ago? Uh, no, I'm about, I'm looking, I'm getting about three to 400 listeners a week. Uh, I just, I've had 11,000 all time listeners. That number is steadily increasing, but I don't know that that, I don't know. I don't know if that's the, what, okay. So I've been fixated on how many a week, but maybe that, maybe it's, maybe people tune in a little bit, they get the message and then they are like, okay, this is boring. I'm not going to listen anymore, but I kind of agree with this guy. So who knows how yeah. much it's, I get, I'm just, yeah, you know what? I've never really thought about what, what's the, what, what's the sign What's the measurable thing that would indicate that uh, this is having some kind of positive impact? I I had it in my head that it was never about changing people's minds. I just had it in, in my head that every a huge portion of the hunting community thought just like me. And I thought, well, let's see if we can bring us all together. And, and I thought that there'd be this groundswell of support. That didn't turn out to be true. I mean, and But only 11,000 people have listened to me at all. So maybe that's still coming. I do have some people that are willing to uh, help. You know, I, for, for, I've had probably, for every, I probably had 100 people tell me they would help and four or five that actually do. So... Um, but that gives me some hope. Like the, the people, there are a few handful of people that care enough to actually do something about all this bullshit. But, but yeah, it's it's to answer your question with my analytics, it's yeah. a let like eleven thousand all time listeners, three to four hundred a week. I uh, just started an Instagram, the Hunt Quietly Instagram, and I got a guy running that for me. And I've been making funny little videos, satirical stuff. I think there's a role for satire because, like, what with this stuff? Because I think what we're it's the, the idea that somebody is the many the the top people, the people that are most uh, that have the most ears and eyeballs on them in the whole hunting sphere are killing 20, 30 animals a year. That is just comical to me yeah. that that's who we're paying attention to. Right. And, it, and that 
in how bad they are for the common man's experience. It's just comical to me. So I just, I can't, I don't seem to be getting much traction with just pointing out how, or trying to get people to boycott it by just saying how stupid it is and how selfish it is and, and, and pointing out how gross the commodification of wildlife is and trotting out of dead animals. So I just kind of resort, resorted with the Instagram thing to some satire, but I, I mean, that's just starting. I got 75, I got 75 followers, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what I, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to keep going for a while and see. Yeah. Well, it's not, you know, it changing something like that. You've got a whole industry up against you. Right. And not that they're directly up against you, but just in the sense that you're saying something that they aren't. The and, thing uh, is, it's like, there's a concrete choice in my mind. And, and people just have to think it through for themselves and see and decide if they think I'm right. Yeah. I think you are, are you got to, people have to make, a decision if they're into hunting entertainment and hunting culture, or if they're into hunting, because I right. think of those things as incompatible, right? Hunting entertainment and hunting culture as currently instantiated leads to leasing. It leads to, to privatization. Whereas, if you're a hunter, that's counterproductive, that stuff. If you're just a dude that likes to hunt and doesn't want to pay for it. So, but, you know, I'm reaching out to people that consume hunting media. I wonder about how many people are out there that only thing they realize is it's getting harder and harder to find a place to hunt. And they don't even understand why. Because they're not, they don't even... They're not in, in they they don't engage in hunting media at all. Yeah. I don't I think that um I don't know that there's anybody now that doesn't see that doesn't see some form of social media if they're if that's what their interests are, because you're like on Facebook or on Instagram, <clears throat> everything is so curated that if you even I mean if you even speak the words man, I saw that new Browning crossbow or, or I want to get one of those new pair of Danner mountain boots. I mean, your Facebook and Instagram will be inundated with that within minutes. I just had, mm. I mean, so everything is so curated that I don't think there's anybody. Now they may not correlate the fact that there's 15 pickup trucks in the parking lot all of a sudden to the fact that, you know, they're all seeing that same, oh, that's where they got the big one last year or such and such a hunting but celebrity. I have a lot of people reach out to me that somehow found my podcast that hate social media. Oh, sure. So they, they're, they don't, they've somehow stumbled across my podcast, but they don't consume. doesn't. And they, they'll be like, I don't watch hunting TV. I don't like hunting social media. I don't like any social media. So there's some contingent that's like that. And then, and, and then those folks are, are the people I'm talking about, like where yeah. it's like, they all, they, all they see is like, man, it's getting harder and harder to find a place to hunt. And right. they don't really have a strong sense of why that's happening. 
I don't know. I, sp- I mean, I that mean, could be that could be the case in some very remote, maybe some remote places. But I think anybody who hunts on, or I mean, shops on Amazon or Google's, you know, the latest broadhead or, um, I mean, all of that stuff, all of your information is sold now. So, and it, you know, it's all yeah. interconnected. Yeah. I mean, to include, you know, even if you, even if you're taking photographs of your own, you know, deer that you, you know, maybe you're just emailing it to friends or maybe, you know, posting them on social media, just thinking, oh, my family's all on social media. So I'll put this on Facebook so my family can see it. You know, now that's all of a sudden that is your, that's going to be your echo chamber now is going to be hunting things that look like dead animals. Mm. You know, that you, you know, even if you did it well intentioned, well, that's just how I stay in. You know, do you think the algorithms pick up like that it's a grip and grin and start? It's probably just the caption that you write underneath it that they pick up on or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that even with Google, you can take an image and search an image on Google and it'll show you corresponding or similar images. That's true. That's true. And so, so yeah. I don't know. I, I'd be. That new, especially with that new AI thing that they're talking about with Facebook meta and all that stuff, I would be very surprised if your images are not being cataloged as hunting images or bow and arrow images or, you know, or gun media. I bet you're right. right. There's with human medicine, there's, there's applications now that can detect disease. Um, So the example I'm aware of is with some eye disease. I can't remember which one, but the AI can accurately classify you as having this eye disease or not having it. Hmm. And the medical community has no idea (laughs) what it is in the image that, the AI is picking up on, but it's probably doing a better job than modern it's, medicine. It is. <laughs> it is. Oh, it is. But yeah, they like, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's so if, 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 if machine learning algorithms can, can detect disease, I'm sure they can detect a dead deer. Yeah. I would be, I'd be, I'd be surprised if somebody who posts, you know, even if they do it, like I said, well-intentioned, maybe they have, you know, 12 family members that are their only friends on Facebook and it's just their way of staying in touch with family, you know, and they post that, you know, six point that they killed because they're, you know, they're super proud of it. And maybe they did it all by their own wits and maybe they did all the other things right. And maybe they don't have the, you know, the premier camouflage and the premier new, you know, 750 yard rifle and thousand yard scope. Um, but that I, 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 I'm pretty confident that that algorithm is going to catch up to them and start feeding them other people mm-hmm. who have similar likes yeah. or hashtags or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, David, you were asking about my, my analytics. What, what do Okay, a couple questions for both of you guys. Is this going to go anywhere is one question, and what should I be doing differently is the other one. 
I don't think there's any question it's going to go somewhere. At some point, there's no choice, right? It's like, which I've, I think you've kind of laid out is it's like at some point, you're not going to have a choice as to whether um, the opportunity is going to become less and less until the point that there is no more opportunity. Right? That's been so the that pattern. Like, that's been the pattern for my 40 years as a hunter. It's never right. gotten better. It's only yeah. gotten, it's only gotten, access has only gotten tougher. Crowding's only gotten worse. So, but, and the, 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 the episodes I've listened to years where you, you know, maybe been in some kind of conflict with whoever the guest is about whether or not, why it's this way, what can be done about it. Nobody seems to have any disagreement about the fact that the opportunity is becoming harder to come by. So it's like, I don't, I don't know of anybody else in the hunting sphere or whatever talking about it in such a clear and concise way. So at some point, if you're the only one talking about it and people are noticing it, (laughs) you know, it's like, where else are they going to go to get an idea of what's going on? And it seems like everybody you talk to seems to kind of agree with you and they understand it's a problem. So, you know, you you seem to be the voice of that side of things right now. So I, I don't I don't see how it doesn't grow and it doesn't become a, a bigger thing. Uh, Mike? Yeah, I'm kind of alone. I kind of think the same way. Uh, I, I sort of feel like until until people are really hit with that hard realization and it and it may be in the form of like there's way more poaching all of a sudden. And landowners are, you know, having to pursue legal action against people. Um, you know, that may be the tipping point where lawmakers and the people who really don't want, don't need this to change because I think you've mentioned it before is like the people that really have the ability to change this thing aren't speaking up. You know, the, the social media celebrities, the hunting celebrities, these large groups that seem like they should be on the side of public land access that are doing little more than kind of kowtowing to either their sponsors or, I mean, I'm sure some of those programs come with political affiliations where, you know, they're, they're doing all these membership drives, but it's kind of this nefarious thing to just create more customers. I don't know how that's a sustainable model. And I mean, it's obviously not sustainable. We've already seen, you know, just in our 20 to 40 years of hunting experiences, you know, that go downhill to where people were hunting in, you know, red and black plaid jackets to now wearing, you know, $1,500 worth of camo outerwear, you know, to shoot a deer in a forest like it's it's amazing to me it's amazing to me that that's what hunting has become kind of in the mainstream and almost like if you don't do that now you're you're the outsider now which is mind-boggling to me yeah and and i just don't know why the celebrities in the hunting community aren't saying more about like like i don't know why they're not talking about it more um yeah well it seems like all the time is devoted to selling those products that seem to be so important and crucial to be a successful hunter now you know it's like i don't know I, it's just like a lot of that shit man it's just a lot of selling you something and it's yeah it's and that's just, the i, 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 I find it read conflict 
Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I think there's a lot of ways to justify it where you, you know, talk about how it enables you to have a platform to speak for con- conservation and give back and this and that. But it's like at the end of the day, if your primary mes- message is less to do with creating opportunity, creating, you know, a mindset that is conservation focused and more to do with selling shit, then it's like where, where, what are you real? Well, what is the impact you're really having? You know, I'm sure you're selling a lot of shit. Are you also creating more access and more opportunity? And it's like, you know, at some point that's got to be the cool thing. Right. And hopefully mm-hmm. conversations like the one you're having, Matt, kind of get people to start making that the cool thing. You know, it's like, I, I think it's possible. Um, at some point it's going to have, it's going to be necessary, you know? Probably yeah. already is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it has to, the solution has to come from hunters. Hunters have to stop um, being, being the customer. I mean, they have to stop being the customer that's going to make their own experience worse to watch these celebrities and pay for all this gear. And at the same exact time, they're diminishing their own opportunity to get out there and have a, positive experience in the outdoors like by themselves yeah i just hope it doesn't get to a have to get to a tipping point to where the experience is so bad that they're like i'm not going to buy any more hunting gear because it's just not worth it yeah (laughs) to get out there with you know 40 other people in the orange army yeah i don't know what goes on in boards boardrooms in like the hunting industry but my my paranoid side wonders maybe they're like well if it all goes to all the opportunity goes to people of means they if it, those people have more to spend money to spend on gear i don't know. <laughs> I, I, I i don't think that that's the level of the conversation but um i yeah i don't know i don't know i really appreciate you guys giving me your your prognostication though on where where you think your things need to go and and whether or not this is worth my time no i think your message matt absolutely hit home with me i I mean i didn't uh, i didn't hear about hunt quietly until i heard you on the blood origins podcast and i had no idea about the r3 thing um and how those and how basically the the people that are supposed to be fighting for our rights to get on public land and opening up access are really kind of working against yeah. what what not necessarily their stated mission, but man, that is what their stated mission should be. Yeah, I mean, you can't say that overcrowding is the major contributor to dissatisfaction, and then say, well, but you know, to fix that, we're just going to create more customers in the hunting industry. Right, it's, right. It's so at odds with I, what they're trying yeah, to Yeah, I've been saying lately that it's impossible to be R th- to be pro R3 because um, they're in, I think of them as internally inconsistent. You're either R1, which is retention, or you're R2, which is reactivation and recruitment because any gains in, 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 reactivation and recruitment are going to come at the expense of people that want to be yeah exactly Um, keeping people that want that experience and i you know i and 
as a public land hunter, I see it all the time. I, I have anecdotes coming out my ass, um, about the looks on people's faces when they run into me a field, you know, the frustration that people feel when they're like they're lifelong bow hunters. And the reason they took up the bow, and this is the reason I took up the bow is just to have a little more peace and solitude uh, in the outdoors. And now that you, they can't even find peace and solitude when they're bow hunting, you know, I, so yeah, I, I, I think that the more that the existing hunting community gets frustrated um, with like quote unquote, what's supposed to be a back country experience being, being not that, but being running into people everywhere they look, the less the, the existing hunting community is going to feel compelled to fight for the future of hunting, the less inclined they're going to be to keep at it. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, I don't. I, yeah. I will say, Meta, you you asked, you know, what you thought you could, you know, do better, improve on, or what would be a, you know, suggestion or something yeah. like that. And I'd say, I'd say, you know, at least from my perspective, kind of focusing more on that private land access and getting more people who own property or have access to private property to open that up to other people, because you know, you being exclusively a public land hunter, you know as more of those public, I'm sorry, private opportunities open up to other people, maybe you have less of those people yeah, out in oh public yeah, sure. because there's nowhere else to go, you know? Yeah. And, you know, maybe some of these people that are only, you know, hiking out, hiking in however many miles and clogging all that space up, you know, maybe as some of these private land opportunities open up, they start to go that route and, uh, you know, the public land experience gets better as well. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a lot of people um, in the hunting space who have either property of their own or access to it, who, you know, are op like open to that idea that more people should have that same opportunity. And um, I think it, I think honestly, it probably just hasn't crossed a lot of people's minds. You know, it's like, there's, there is huge swaths of the country where it's like the only option, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily something people think of as a wrong that they're doing to others. Um, I think it's just something that's kind of ingrained in culture in a lot of places. And as people start to reevaluate that and a lot of these, you know, like public is the new cool thing. You know, I can tell you that from the little experience I have with hunting uh, media or whatever is it's like, that's what people want to be doing now. That's like the cool thing to go out on public go deep in the back country and have those kind of experiences. And, um, you know, it's like, um, I think as people who have access to private want to have also, also have a, the opportunity to do those kind of things, they're going to see that, well, you know, if I want to have those experiences, have them be positive, maybe I need to open up some of this private spot that I have to let some of those people have those experiences as well. Right. Right. Yeah, the the more the more folks can get on private, the less crowded the public becomes. I mean, and yeah, yeah I, I guess if there's all any number of ways you could, I could think of to, to 
to like succinctly, somewhat succinctly say what I'm up to. And what I'm up to is trying to make it so that the, I'm trying to somewhat homogenize acres per hunter. Right. Not, I mean, not completely, but because it's freaking impossible, but just making it a little more homogenous. Yeah. Impose a little homogeneity on that, just a tiny bit. You know, when you have people killing 25 big game animals a year and other people not killing any, it gives you an indication of just how uh, heterogeneous opportunity is. So, and I think of that as a problem. I think of us, I think of the hunting community as just that, a community. We should be looking out for one another. So, right. All right, fellas. Um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time and giving me your thoughts and thinking hard about this and providing an example of two fellows that um, have been blessed with a little bit of land and are thinking about trying to do right by their fellow sportsmen with that. So thank you. Yeah. Cheers to that. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I mean, it's a great uh, opportunity to be on, and um, hopefully, like more people, just get the picture about this whole public land mess. It's it's just a mess, and, and until someone's willing to stay out, stand up, and maybe even be the square peg in the round hole, and be the outsider saying, you know, no, there's a better way. I mean, it's just never going to be, be fixed. Yeah. All right. Yeah, your your voice is needed, and I, and I hope you uh, I hope you keep it up, man. I okay. Thanks. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Happy Christmas. holidays. Yeah. All right. Bye. Yeah. God bless. See y'all later. Yep.